You're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. If you are left, which assumably makes you between one to three and nine to, I don't know, 108, you'd open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. And if you didn't bring one, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 983 this morning. If you're a regular attender of Calvary, you know that we regularly teach through books of the Bible. We do it for a couple of reasons. First, we want you to be exposed to the whole counsel of God. And by that, I mean every book of the Bible. But more than that, I mean every topic in the Bible. Those I would pick for you and those that the text would pick for us. And secondly, we do it because it honors the Word of God. Here at Calvary, we hold the Word of God to the highest level. And in saying that, I would tell you that we affirm that God's Word is infallible, meaning that it is without error in its original transcripts. We believe God's Word is inspired, meaning that it came directly from God. And we believe God's Word is authoritative, meaning that it holds the highest authority over all men. And lastly, I would tell you, That because God revealed himself in the Bible, and he did so using 66 books, rather than a topical index, that's why we use books of the Bible to lead our time here. And while from time to time we delve into topics, we mostly look at books of the Bible, and in this season, we're in the book of Colossians. Now, I give you that introduction to the Bible, because I like to say it about every six months, But also because this morning, as we open the book of Colossians, Paul is going to move us from this massive, enormous picture of the supremacy of Jesus Christ into the reality of suffering. So as we jump into this this morning, into this idea of suffering, it is absolutely crucial for us to take this passage in its context so that we'd be able to see how the Bible paints suffering so that we might get a glimpse into our suffering, possibly the role of suffering, and greater than that, a theology of suffering that, frankly, the American church needs to delve into. So let's get it into context. As Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, he thanks God, and he prays for the people of Colossae. Now, you may remember that I asked you a couple of weeks ago to write down someone to be praying for them. I told you I'd ask you about that. Here's your chance, I want to ask you again to keep praying for them. Because when I did that, I heard some really encouraging feedback, and so I would encourage you to keep praying for them as Paul did, that prayer really matters. And Paul believed that it mattered, so let's keep praying. And what Paul prays for the Colossians, he prays that they would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, not that they would get smart but that the Word of God would transform their lives. That the Word of God would do a work, and Paul gives you four things that mark a transformed life. He says, first, that transformed lives bear fruit. And secondly, that transformed lives grow in knowledge. Thirdly, that transformed lives are strengthened. And to Paul, the whole point of strengthening is that you would endure. Why? Because life is challenging. In fact, he says you would grow in endurance and patience with great joy. That you would grow in patience with great joy. 
Now that's a whole view of suffering right there. That we wouldn't just be patient, but that we'd be joyously patient. That's what Paul prays that we would, or asks and prays that we would pray for one another. And then last week we saw Paul lift Jesus Christ, the one whom the text says delivered us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, the one who redeemed us, the one who forgave us, that Paul lifts Jesus Christ to the highest description given in the word of God, and he makes 12 colossal, point made, huge statements about Jesus. He calls him the image of the invisible God. He calls him the firstborn of creation. He says he's the agent of creation, the goal of creation. He says that Jesus was pre-existent, that Jesus holds everything together. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, that Jesus is preeminent, that he's the fullness of God, that Jesus is the reconciler, Jesus is the peacemaker. Paul puts all of these things together for us because he wants you to have an absolutely epically large view of Jesus. And you may remember from last week, having done that, he then paints a picture of us that is not epically huge. In fact, he describes us as having been alienated from God. He describes us as being desperate. He describes us as in sin. He describes us as hostile. And what Paul does there is he puts on display the grandeur of the gospel. That a huge, righteous, holy God would look down upon broken people who were hostile and he would pursue them and claim them and love them and ultimately reconcile them to himself through the cross. That's the picture that Paul paints for us. That this great, beautiful, holy God pursues us and claims us. And he goes on to say that in God's eyes we are holy and blameless and above reproach. That's the essence of the gospel, is it not? So what Paul is doing here as we finish this first chapter of Colossians, where he paints the biggest picture of Jesus possible, of his character, of his nature, of his preexistence, of his eminence, and he clarifies our salvation, Paul doesn't make a move towards our health or our wealth or our blessings or our prosperity. Now lean into that for a second. Because if you watch enough church on TV, that's what they all say, right? That's the false gospel given in America. That God's desire for you is happiness. That it's wellness. That it's wealth. That it's blessings. And that if you would only follow God and pursue Him, you will find these things. And it's a sweet idea. And I'll tell you, my flesh longs for it. But it isn't the Bible. It isn't what the Bible puts before us. This is another false teaching that Paul is pushing back on. Paul gives us this huge picture of Jesus This huge picture of salvation, of God saving us, and immediately moves us into suffering. I remember the first couple of times I was asked to share my testimony as a teenager. 
having come to Christ, I was in the ministry of Young Life and serving in Young Life. You, they put you in a couple contexts to share your testimony, to begin to tell people what Christ has done in your life. And it was awesome. It was really challenging. I loved that. But one of the things that stands out to me is before I would share my testimony, somebody would always say to me something like, hey, and make sure to include that your life hasn't been perfect since you've believed in Jesus. Now, looking back on that, is that true for anyone? I mean, has that actually been a struggle for anyone? That you accepted Jesus and all of a sudden, everything went right? Everything went perfect? Everything went smooth? And it sure hasn't been true for me. And I will readily grant you that I'm a middle-class white guy living in America which supposes some things that I've had it better than most of the rest of the population of the world. But it's not been easy. It sure hasn't felt that way. We miss the reality of Scripture that God saves us, and in His supremacy of salvation, He doesn't relieve us of life. In fact, He calls us to suffer. One of the distinctions and the distinctives of our faith something that sets christianity apart is that not only do we suffer but we have a theology of suffering and paul will bring that to light for us this morning let me read the whole passage to you and then we'll come back and pick it apart this is what paul writes in colossians 1 and following now i rejoice in my sufferings for your sake And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, Yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 25 through 2, 5. In these 11 short verses, there is plenty to look at. But there is an overarching theme that Paul gets to. You see, sew it all together, and it is suffering. Paul says, I have suffered. He says he is toiled he says he has struggled and he alludes to a great struggle something i think a lot of us will at least lean into when we consider our lives in fact paul in second corinthians eleven twenty four 24 through 27 shares some of his many sufferings 
And this is what he writes, just so you get a clue about what his life looked like. Paul says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Paul's pointing before you, if you believe 40 lashes is the number that would kill a man, that means on five different occasions they said, no, let's not kill him, let's just take him close. Did God let that happen? Absolutely he did. Three times I was beaten with rods. Did God let that happen? Absolutely he did. Once I was stoned. That means a group of people threw rocks at him and didn't walk away until they were convinced he was dead. Right? You don't not finish stonings. Did God let that happen? Absolutely he did. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. At some point, you think Paul is at some point looking up going, God, seriously? Like, is this what you offered me when you took me off a donkey? The answer is yes. One, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And he goes on to tell you that at all times his life is in danger. At all times he's being threatened. He finishes by saying, in toil and hardship, and through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, Paul could testify to struggling. Now, if I want to look at that and look at my life and I could complain about a three-year-old not sleeping much, I look like a pansy, don't I? Now, I'm not trying to underestimate my own challenges, nor am I trying to ridicule yours, because you have on your plate what God has apportioned for you to have on your plate, just like Paul had on his plate what God had apportioned Paul to have on his plate, and it doesn't make it any easier. What does help us, though, is a theology of suffering. Because we can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus, our Savior, whom we're called to follow, suffered greatly. And we can't lose sight of the fact that the 11 remaining disciples who followed Him all suffered greatly. Ten of them died, and you'll remember John, according to tradition, They tried to boil to death, and when he didn't die when being boiled in hot oil, it freaked him out, so they let him go. That's not a great, that's not the great exception. We need a theology of suffering, and Paul gives it to us in this text, starting in Colossians 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. When Paul suffered, he rejoiced. He gave thanks. We see this over and over and over again in his writings. During his challenges to endure in Philippians 4. He says, I've endured hardship. I've endured ease. In all of those things, he begins with the command first to rejoice and ends it with the command, again I say, rejoice. So why on earth would we rejoice in our sufferings? Paul says it in Romans 5, again, the command to rejoice, telling us to rejoice in suffering, knowing that we will bear fruit of endurance and character and hope. And I'll be honest with you, I do not find that encouraging. On more than one occasion in my life, I felt really full of character and done building character. 
And yet you find that that's not God's absolute end of suffering. Paul points to a different purpose. And here he says his sufferings are for your sake. Not just that the Lord would mature him, but that you, the church, and literally the Colossians, might be benefited. You might be advantaged because of the way he suffered. Look at the rest of verse 24. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now this is probably the most challenging verse in the book of Colossians to interpret, one of the worst in the Bible, and today I get to earn my paycheck. Last week I would have preached for free, this is your moneymaker. What is Paul saying here when he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Two things. Is Paul saying that Christ's death on the cross was insufficient or lacked something? Say it again. Everybody. No. Absolutely not. If Paul was writing that, he would have to include the subnote, please delete Galatians, please delete Romans, please delete almost everything else I ever wrote. Right? That would negate most of the New Testament. So that is absolutely, positively not what he's saying here. But this is what he writes in Romans 3, just to give it to you this way. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. How is it manifested? Jesus. If it's apart from the law, that means that it's not you earning it. It means it's not you living a life that's good enough. Your behavior modification will not get it done. It's Jesus, the only way. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God justified you Through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, it is the only justification for you. Amen. It is not you. It is not your good works. It is not your behavioral modification plans. There is nothing that could be added. Jesus paid it all. And Christ's sufferings were complete for salvation. So then Paul is pointing us to something other than salvation. So how does his suffering fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? And I would submit to you that what Paul is pointing out here is that somehow the body of Christ is built up by the testimony of those who suffer. That the body of Christ is built up by the testimony of those who suffer And can testify to the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
Now follow Paul's arguments here. Jesus is entirely supreme. He's entirely sufficient. He is absolutely everything. It's all about Him. And we come to the Gospel. We are in need. And He died in our place. Now if we take that, and we claim that salvation, and still live a life that is absolutely and completely about us, we miss it. That the highest way for His sufficiency to be on display would be in our insufficiency. That His sufficiency would be best shown to the world when we are utterly weak. When it becomes evident that we cannot do it on our own. When it becomes evident that our efforts aren't getting it done. Let me point it to you this way. That if I had a good job, and I have a great job, right? If I had a good job, and I made a ton of money, and I bought a huge house with a huge pool and a huge hot tub, which by the way, I'd be on on a day like today, and I drove a fancy car, and I had a cool lake house, and I stood in my front yard one day and said, praise God, he's good to me. The guy who lives across the street from me would look at me and say, praise God for that? I worked hard and I did the same thing. Like, why does God get any credit for that? Now, if you're working hard and that's your life, may to God be the glory, I'm not picking on you. But if same guy whose body becomes absolutely riddled with cancer can hardly walk, his family begins to fall apart. Think of the book of Job here. Where Job's nagging wife, and I can call her that because all she does is nag him through the book, she says to him repeatedly, listen, curse God and die. If that's your life and you stand there and you say, praise God, maybe somebody has to help you raise your arm, your neighbor now looks at you and goes, whoa, what? God gave you that and you're going to praise him for it? God's walking you through hardship, through suffering, through difficulties, and you're going to point up? That's why the book of Job becomes so incredibly important for us. Because Job sees throughout all of his challenges, throughout all of his struggles, and remember the beginning of that book, that brother loses everything. Everything. And still praises God despite his best friends who were lame and his wife who didn't help. He still pointed up. That shows and reveals the sufficiency of God, the supremacy of God, far more than our wealth ever could. See, that's the tension in the prosperity theology because we make it all about us. God wants to bless me. God wants to make me look good so that I'll be on display for the world to see so that they can look at me and know how great God is. Friends, that's not in your Bible. What you do find in your Bible is that God wants the people to look at you and see a broken, humiliated person who's struggling to get by so that you can testify that the only reason I'm standing here is because Jesus is gracious to me. And that the only reason my marriage holds together is because God is gracious to me and has given me abundant grace. 
And the only way I can love these three squirrely kids in my life is because God the Father gives me a love for them that I don't understand. And the only reason I can be faithful in a job, and the only reason I can do this, and the only reason I can do that is because God has been so abundantly gracious to me. So that my life is not, hey, look at me. It's, hey, look at him. Look what he's done. Look at how he holds me. Look at how he carries me. See, that gives God credit. That gives God glory. And friends, that's where we have to understand that the chief end of our salvation is not our happiness, our contentment, or our comfort. The chief end of our salvation is His glory. And if that sounds entirely uncomfortable to you, welcome to the club. I wouldn't pick that. I wouldn't pick it at all. Friday is January 27th. January 27th is one of the hardest days of my life. January 27th, 24 years ago, I lost my mom. On January 27th, eight years ago, my first son was born. It is always a conflicting day for me, a challenging day where I just have to pray, Jesus, be enough. Be enough. I I don't have it enough to get my life together. I don't always have it enough to pull and get my junk together. I don't even have it enough some days to look at my son and say, hey, buddy, I want this to be about you. Because life has not been all that easy some days. Sometimes it's been difficult. It's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to fall apart. And yet, in that moment, I have to be reminded, it's not about me. If that were true, I never would have picked that for me. I never would have picked my mom dying when I was a college student. I never, ever, ever would have put that in the book of Ben. I'd have put like easy life. I'd be like a trust fund baby. That's what I would have picked for me. And I would have died old. Pam and I would have like fallen asleep together one night in our 110s holding hands and that we'd go. I wouldn't have picked my mom passing away, but I got to tell you, 24 years later, having never, ever, ever had a day I would have picked that, I can tell you, God has been so gracious to me because of it. And I can point out to you and say, man, God, my relationship with my own earthly father is so much greater because of that. And my relationship with my sister is so much greater because of it. And I've seen God be so sufficient in my life because of it. Friends, we would not pick a lot of what God has for us. But he's glorified through it. And I think that's what Paul is pushing us to here. Is a view where it's not about me, it's about him. And it's about his sufficiency. And it's about his character and him holding us. Paul continues to push on this. You see it woven through the rest of this passage. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Note, God's grace was given, his stewardship was given to Paul, not for him, but for you. The purpose? To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. That mystery that Jesus Christ would come in flesh and would bring not only uh, Jews but Gentiles into salvation. And how does God make that known? 
Paul throughout this passage says, by suffering. That's how Christ is made known, by suffering. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How are the Gentiles supposed to perceive the riches, not of this earth, but of God's glory? By suffering. By the testimony of you and I testifying to His goodness, testifying to His sufficiency, testifying that He alone can walk us through, can carry us and can hold us through the worst that this life could hand out or pass out. And He continues, Him we proclaim. And friends, don't miss the fact that that proclamation isn't just your words. That proclamation is your life. It is Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, how do you do that? Paul would say that you testify to the church. He says you boast of your weaknesses, that Christ would be exalted. It's about Him. It's not about me. Paul suffered and he paid the price knowing that through his sufferings, Christ would be exalted. And that, friends, was his joy. Knowing that whatever hurt his flesh, whatever pained his flesh, brought Jesus Christ glory and put his complete sufficiency on display. So let me ask you this. What is your chief end and your chief goal? Is it to display your sufficiency? Is it to show the world that you've got your life together? Is it to show the world that you have it under control? Is it to show the world that you can manage everything? Is it to show the world that you are enough, that you are sufficient, that you can get it all done? Because friends... Everything about our culture tells you that's true. Except for our Bible. Or do we want to lead a life that screams, Jesus alone is enough. Jesus is alone is sufficient. Because if that's the life we want to lead, all of a sudden, we don't hide our flaws. All of a sudden, we don't hide our struggles. All of a sudden, it becomes more than great for us to share with people, you know, I'm really struggling right now. I don't know how to handle this, but you know, I trust the Lord. Jesus is going to be enough. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians to encourage them. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Friends, here's your reminder, your jar of clay you're not stainless steel. You're not cast iron. You're not rubber made. I don't know what you want to be. But you're a jar of clay, which means you break easily. That's Paul's illustration for you. And he goes on to say that as a jar of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Who does it belong to? And not you. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He's putting that out for you to the Corinthians. That all of your sufferings, all of your trials, all of your challenges, that you are a jar of clay, and in verse 10b, if you'll let me say it that way, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That our bodies would testify to Him. That He'd be manifested through us. Verse 11, For we who live are always been being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And finally, he writes this to the Romans. Romans 8, 37 and 39. Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And I don't know in your life what all of these things are. When Paul says, in all of these things, I don't know what that looks like for you. In Paul's writings, a couple of verses ahead of this, he's alluding to all of these things being tribulations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. Eugene Peterson in his message updates the list to say trouble, hard times, hatred, hunger, homelessness, bullying, threats, or backstabbing. I don't know what all of these things are to you. you, In fact, it'd be a good exercise to make your list, to write it down. What are all of these things in my life? Because whatever is challenging you, whatever is causing you to suffer, Jesus is greater than it. He's bigger, He's stronger. That was the message last week. That we are more than conquerors through Christ. Because someday, a trillion years from now, cancer will not matter. Disease will not matter. Disobedient kids will not matter. Whatever it is, will not matter. When we stand triumphantly before Jesus Christ and God the Father because of the salvation that we had because of the complete sufficiency of Jesus shown through Him and not through me. For I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, which is a pretty good summary, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul says is Jesus can carry you through all of it because He's bigger than all of it. Friends, as Paul is writing this to the Colossians and he's exhorting them and he's encouraging them and he's revealing to them false teaching, he's trying to get them to see that we have this incredible Jesus that we follow and He's supreme, and He's sufficient, and He's bigger than Rome, and He's bigger than any idol you could worship, and He's bigger than any and fill-in-the-blank you could add to your theology or your philosophy. Jesus is awesome! And His sufficiency will be best on display when your insufficiency is revealed, when your weakness is shown, when you fall short, when you are not enough, when you can't get it done, 
when you suffer. That's when we testify to the sufficiency of the one who's enough. That's Paul's argument. That his sufficiency and supremacy is on its greatest display in our lives when we suffer and the church benefits by the testimony of those amongst us saying, yeah, you'd not believe what I walked through, but Jesus was enough. And you would not believe what happened to me, but Jesus was enough. And that we would be exhorted and encouraged and built up to know that whatever is facing us, He is enough. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You so much for Your Word that in it we find truth. That in it we find hope. That in it we find pictures of Your Son, Jesus that are enormous and bigger than anything I can imagine. And Father, it's in Him we find salvation. God, as I think about my life, there are many things that I would not pick for myself, including losing my mom. But Father, I stand here declaring that You are enough. That You've been sufficient. That though it's been harder than I ever would want to confess to any living human, You've been enough. And you've blessed me and carried me and been sufficient in ways I couldn't imagine. That's just a small picture of a little suffering in my life. Father, you've been sufficient in every aspect of everything I've ever looked for. And God, I will confess in front of this whole group that oftentimes when I struggle, I don't look to you first. Just like the rest of us. But none of those things have ever been sufficient. And I'm not either. So Father, as a church, may you grant us the ability to trust you and to testify to who you are and your ability to carry us. And Father, I know that there are people in this room right now who are struggling with all kinds of things. Father, may you just lovingly whisper into their ear of your sufficiency. May they walk with you and cling to you. May those around just continue to encourage them, Father, just to trust you in it. Father, for we would never pick these things for ourselves. But Father, you do it so that we can testify to who you are and about how you can carry us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for a salvation so great. In your name we pray. Amen.